host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Christopher Clemenson. Dr. Clemenson is a professor who runs the Metabolism and Molecular Pharmacology Research Group at the University of Copenhagen, and his lab studies obesity and metabolism and a lot of the stuff in the brain and body related to that. So they're very interested in understanding, you know, what are the circuits in the brain that control feeding behavior? What are, you know, the gut peptides and the hormones cir circulating throughout the body that regulate appetite? They are trying to understand the mechanisms that underlie things like obesity, and they want to understand all that in order to develop new therapies for things like obesity and other metabolic disorders. And so we touched on all those topics. We talked about what obesity is and how it's measured. We talked about the causes of obesity and the various environmental factors like diet and exercise and lifestyle that contribute to it and the various aspects of biology and genetic predisposition and all that stuff. We talked a little bit about some of the new anti-obesity drugs that have recently been developed and how they work by mimicking some of the actions of some of the gut peptides in our body and things like that. And we also talked about some of the research they've started to do looking at psilocybin and psychedelics and whether or not those might be relevant for developing therapies for things like obesity and metabolic disease. So if you're interested in metabolism, generally speaking, and the causes of obesity and me metabolic disorders and how people are thinking about those things and how to treat them and how you know things like psychedelics might actually be a novel therapeutic modality for treating not just psychiatric conditions like depression or PTSD that we normally think about in the context of psychedelics, but actually these more metabolic type disorders and diseases and whether or not that's going to be a promise area of research. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing here, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you are listening or watching. Check out mindandmatter.substack.com. You'll find links to my weekly free newsletter about the podcast, as well as some of my long-form writing that integrates a lot of the topics I touch on across episodes. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food-sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy-free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form, and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Christopher Clemenson. I think the level of scientific detail you go into oftentimes, so, and that's also why I, I enjoy listening to it, because I actually feel like I learn a lot, because many of the topics are outside of, of what I do, so I've learned a lot, especially pertaining to psychedelics so for me it's been very useful 
Oh, great, great. Well, I'm glad uh, I'm glad you listened to it and, and you like it. Um, do you want to just start off by just telling everyone a little bit about who you are and what your lab does? Yeah, yeah. So, so I'm uh, Christopher Clemsen, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Copenhagen in Denmark, and I run an academic lab at the. It's called the Novo Nordisk Foundation Center for Basic Metabolic Research, um, and in my lab we're predominantly interested in uh, in two things. One is to study and hopefully learn something about the biological mechanisms that regulate body weight and then to take advantage of and or exploit such insights into designing and developing new uh, pharmacological strategies for weight loss or weight loss maintenance. So those are the two key focus areas of of my lab. Um, But it's a very, I mean, it's a very basic oriented research profile we have. So so we don't do we do a few human intervention studies, but we predominantly use experimental animals for for our work. And um, you know, you do a lot of stuff that's related to feeding behavior and and weight and obesity. And obviously, I think everyone knows that you know obesity has been a, a growing uh, problem across the globe, really, for for quite some time now. Can you just give us a basic technical definition of what obesity is and how that is measured? Yeah, so so when we talk about obesity in in the academic literature and and clinical practice, etc., we typically use the body mass index as a measure of obesity. It's a relationship between our our height and our body weight, and it's a very crude measure. But at the population wide kind of level, it, it it's a very useful measure also because you can get a lot of data. Uh, from from hundreds of thousands of individuals because it's quite easy to measure people's height and weight, but it doesn't say much about the level of actual excess adiposity of body fat or level of fatness. So you can imagine a, a relative um, uh, muscular individual will have a high BMI or body mass index, um, but could still be relatively lean with respect to to the level of, of adiposity. So that's one of the, the caveats with this with this measure, but it's very useful at the at the kind of um, population wide uh, level. And 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 it also basically go goes on to show that we can easily see from those type of data that that the rise in BMI um, has has uh, increased or has been dramatically increasing over the last decades in 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 more or less all all countries across the, the globe. Um, so that is the the typical measure we we use when we look at at um, when we talk about obesity and then many studies when we when we study weight regulation obesity we typically use body weight as as a as a primary measure and and then if we have access to different uh, ways of measuring it we would of course also use um, uh, fat mass as as a as a more uh, direct. Uh, measure of of adiposity or body fatness. Mm-hmm. So it's a fairly crude measurement, and it sounds like on the one hand, it is um, 
it's very convenient because all you need is someone's body weight and their height, very easy numbers to get. And it can tell you, uh, give you a general sense of whether or not they're likely to be obese or not. But for an individual, you would want to get more precise measurements about their actual level of adiposity, the, the actual fat content of their body, how muscular they are and so forth to get a more sort of pinpoint accuracy uh, readout of their metabolic health, basically. Exactly. Yeah. And so obesity, you know, there's been some talk recently about how, how we talk about it and, and, and what it is, uh, is obesity considered a disease or is it something else? Like what, what is it in, in that sort of clinical, uh, nomenclature? So that, that's a very good question and I'm not sure I can, I can answer it, but I can give it a try. So it depends. I think, um, if you talk to the, the Danish health Danish healthcare system, I think they wouldn't agree to that it is a disease, but it's a disorder that means that it predisposes to disease, but in and of itself, it might not be a disease. But uh, I would, but according to the US healthcare system, it might be characterized as a disease, uh, or at least your uh, kind of um, the FDA that 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 is responsible for for approving uh, drugs for rights of diseases in, in the US uh, have at least approved specific drugs for treatment of, of obesity per se. So in that regards, um, you can say that, that it is, it is uh, uh, by some healthcare authorities being characterized as a disease. Um, but it's, it's, it's heavily debated. And, and I guess there are, there are argu arguments on in both camps that I think uh, can be viewed as, as relevant, but I think there's no doubt that excess body fat is associated associated with a variety of of um, of severe adverse effects, and and that it highly predisposes for a large number of other chronic diseases. Um, but if obesity is a disease. In and of itself, I think that or that is still debated. Okay, so you know, people debate whether we call it a disease or a disorder, but having excess body fat certainly predisposes you to a number of negative health outcomes, and I'm sure we'll talk about some. And you know, this phenomenon that everyone can see around them of obesity becoming more and more prevalent over time, I want to get you talking a little bit about the causes of obesity. And it'll be sort of a, a vague question and I'll sort of let us take the conversation wherever it goes. But, you know, when we think about what causes obesity or just weight gain generally, you know, we can talk about obviously diet composition, the, the composition of your diet, as well as the total number of calories you're consuming. Obviously, physical activity levels are relevant. How active are you? How much are you moving your body? And there's also psychological factors that people often talked about, right? Like how, how much willpower or motivation you have to exercise or to regulate your diet. And then lastly, maybe, you know, there's what we can just call like intrinsic biological differences between individuals. You know, different people have different genetics and different uh, metabolism. Our enzymes, you know, don't all work exactly the same way and so forth. Can you start to talk to people a little bit about how you think about all of these factors and, and how they interact and, you know, if any of them are particularly important? Yeah, so that's, of course, uh, that's a big topic. Um, and it's it's one of the things that's clear when you start diving into the 
through the causes of obesity is that you need to cover a variety of 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 different fields of expertise so you have your epidemiologist and you have your you have your cell biologist pharmacologists and and etc so it's it's a tough topic because it's very complex right so just one example is the the contribution from social economic factors so there's a huge a contribution from from socioeconomic factors to obesity predisposition and and that's clearly a super complex component to study and on the other side of the coin you have your genetic uh, factors that has been estimated for example from family and twin studies etc that the genetic component of of our variability in body weight can be ascribed to up to 70% so you have your genetic contribution you have your um food environment and your environment in general um including mental health upbringing socioeconomic status education and in some complex interaction between all of these all of these components we develop a certain a certain uh body morphology uh body weight and a certain amount of of body fat mass so it's to a large extent genetically predisposed but it's it's in the face of the environment we live in that we kind of realize that genetic predisposition as for many other traits um so so in in that way it's i mean that's the that's the easy explanation right it's 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 complex um interaction between our genes and the environment but that that seems to also be the truth for for the development of of obesity or the variability in our body weight Mm-hmm. And what about like some of these intrinsic biological differences between people in terms of how their basic metabolism is working? And you know what I'm thinking about here is I think we've all we've all had experience in our lives with you know seeing people that we interact with and stuff where there's certainly some people who don't put on that much weight. They don't have to work very hard to not worry about obesity or things like this. And there's other people who work really hard. They, they're, ob- they're careful about their diet. They are trying to exercise as much as possible and they still struggle with weight gain. And mm-hmm. it's, it's striking that for some people, it's relatively easy. For some people, it's very hard. And for many people, they're somewhere in the middle. But you know, do we know what's kind of going on there for why some people are, are naturally lean and less prone to weight gain and why some people can put on weight very, very easily, even when they're consuming a diet and they're active that that would not make other people obese? We don't know, but those are the most some of the most interesting questions in the field that you're you're uh, alluding to here. So so even in the most obesogenic environments, so environments where a large degree of the adult population is obese, you have individuals that remain remarkably slim. So why is it that some individuals are capable of staying very skinny or slim in these obesogenic environment? Are they equipped with a superhuman willpower or do they have genes that favor their preference for certain foods or do they have a really sensitive um satiety system meaning that they become extremely full or saturated uh, quickly or do they have like a super powerful or hypersensitive reward system that make them completely um, uh, unreceptive to rewarding stimuli that are all around us right so so those are i think those are fair question to to ask but the as an i think those are also good examples with this the conundrum between these obesogenic environments and 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 uh, individuals that that remain slim, 
And conversely, you also have individuals that are very prone to develop excess adiposity in environments where there's perhaps not, uh, where there's relative food scarcity or where there's not a high abundance of energy dense and hyperpalatable foods. So we see both ends of the spectrum. And I think that exemplifies the interaction between our genetic predisposition and, and the environment. So I think the genetic predisposition, we must not uh, underestimate in, in the variability we see in, in weight phenotypes amongst us. And it seems as if most of us, so we can say like estimate up to two thirds of us are actually in to some extent predisposed to develop excess body fat. Uh, but, but, but the end of the day, it, it, it then depends on the environment that we are, we're living in. And it's not only the food environment, it's also the, the environment, the environment that we are brought up in, right? How we're raised and, 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 and finally it also adds to the complexity with the socioeconomic and the educational aspects as well, right? So, so, so again, um, it's a very vague answer, but I think it serves to underline the, um, the complexity of, of the, of the biology also. And so how much of this can we think of in, in evolutionary terms in the sense that, you know, for, for all of us, if you go back far enough in history in our evolutionary history, um, you know, we're descended from humans, from animals that uh, didn't have the kinds of food surplus that we have today, that didn't have a choice oftentimes as to, you know, when they could eat more or less that was determined by the scarcity of the food in the environment. And it sort of, it makes evolutionary sense that you'd want to bias an animal to accumulate fat in a natural environment where there's going to be, you know, periods of feasting and periods of famines that you can't always control. So, you know, it, it's sort of a, a safety, you could th think of it, I guess, as a safety mechanism. It's better to be biased to put on excess body fat so that you can actually survive a period of famine or food scarcity than the opposite. And, you know, as far as I know, um, most animals, most mammals at least, do often have that bias, right? I, I spent many years working with with uh, laboratory mice. And if you just leave them in the cage and don't give them much to do, and they have all the food that they, they can eat provided to them, uh, you know, they will put on body fat. Is that a reasonable way to, to think about it? Do we basically have that general bias in the population? Yeah, I think that's, that's also, that's a very interesting topic. So I, I generally agree to that the, the biological mechanisms that in prevent us from lowering our body weight or from losing body fat seems to be extremely powerful so we talk about these homeostatic forces or homeostatic mechanisms regulated by a region in the brain called the hypothalamus um, and they're very powerful in terms of preventing uh, basically missing a single meal most for most people that that feels uncomfortable i know it's been popularized with this intermittent fasting and alternate day fasting etc but most people will find it uncomfortable skipping a single meal despite that they have storage levels of energy that can make them go for weeks if not months right so there's no no storage danger with respect to skipping meals nonetheless we've evolved a system that immediately um, uh, immediately somehow perceives this as a as an energy crisis or or a organismal crisis if we start skipping meals so so the the system our the defense system uh, against weight loss ex is extremely uh, powerful you can say but then what about the other side of the spectrum and and weight gain 
so that's the topic that that we're actually also pursuing in 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 my lab and and there's some there's some i would not say there's some conflicting observations so if we overfeed humans as well as animals meaning if we if we if we make them go through experimental paradigm where we uh, introduce them to a controlled energetic surplus so we explore what are the uh, energetic requirements for either human or an animal in order for them to stay weight stable and then we multiply this by a factor of 1.5 or 2 so we introduce a laboratory controlled overfeeding uh, experimental setting then we can control a certain amount of weight gain we can do this in rodents as well as humans but at the moment we then release or stop the overfeeding trial we actually see the animals and humans lose weight back down again so they found back find back to this um homeostatic oftentimes it's referred to as a set point we can also discuss that that theory um, but they seem to find back to the starting body weight level and this is a little bit conflicting with this progression of obesity we see at 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 a more global scale so why is it that we see um as a species we seem to put on more more body weight fat fat mass over years and decades and but we still seem to be equipped with this biological defense system against control over overfeeding um so that is that is one of the things that we're trying to to under, understand at at the moment um but but I think it's it's uh, it's fair to say that that the mechanisms that prevent us from losing body weight are more powerful or rigorous than the mechanisms that prevent us from gaining uh, body weight. But we are equipped with mechanisms that actually prevent us from gaining excessive uh, body weight and fat mass. I mean, there's nothing wrong in a modern environment. You'd easily be able to consume the double amount of energy in each meal, but there's mechanisms in place to prevent you from doing this. So you are you do become saturated eventually, and if you over, if you for some reason go on a on a eating frenzy on a holiday or something like this, you actually will. Most people will experience to to come back, climb back down again, even though they may have gained a few kilograms. Um, but evolutionary to go back to your question. Um, so there's, I think. There's been some arguments against this, sometimes referred to as the, the thrifty gene hypothesis that we've been, our ancestors has been exposed to uh, famines throughout our evolutionary history. And then this has uh, pushed this uh, selection pressure or genetic uh, selection towards uh, basically then eliminating genes that couldn't um, couldn't survive in this condition. But but there's been some researchers have made calculations based on this and, and have argued that if that was the case, then we should all be prone to obesity. If you calculate back how many famines we've been exposed to those, then we should have, have outselected the genes. Uh, so we, we shouldn't, there shouldn't be a one third of the population that would be lean today then. So that's one argument against this uh, thrifty gene hypothesis, at least. And, so when we talk about these these so-called defense mechanisms that that regulate satiety that make us feel full and prevent us from eating you know even even more than than we do you know we could be eating even more than than we do um what are some of these mechanisms what are some of these signals in the body that that tell tell us to be satiated that prevent us from overeating um even more than we do 
And uh, are, are they are these sort of motivational circuits in the brain? Is there stuff released from the gut into the bloodstream? What, what are some of these things? Yeah, so I think one of the most powerful signals uh, is um, the most powerful signals are typically endocrine or hormonal signals. And one of the we most well-known factors is a hormone called leptin that is produced uh, by the adipose tissue from adipocytes in um, in a quite tight relationship with the amount of adipocytes or size of adipose mass we have. Uh, and that signal serves to inform the brain about energy stores in the form of triglycerides and adipose tissue. So that is a, a quite well-characterized signal. Um, and there are few human individuals that are so unfortunate uh, to have uh, mutations in the gene that encodes for leptin or the receptor for which leptin interacts with in the hypothalamus of the brain. And, and these individuals become morbidly obese, unfortunately. So it also shows the, the importance of this, of this single, single factor in the regulation of, of body fatness. So uh, one of the key functions of this hormone leptin uh, is exemplified if you go on you try to calorie restrict to 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 lose body weight it seems as if the decline in circulating leptin is being perceived by the brain um, and that will then promote excessive hunger and also stimulate increased motivation so it will also impact the mesolimbic system reward pathway to prioritize energy dense palatable foods so you'd have a, a kind of food seeking behavior to replenish this energy deficit and that's one of the reasons for why it's so difficult to to maintain on a on a certain dietary uh, regimen independent of of your diet basically because it doesn't matter if you go on low low carb or low fat or low whatever diet in order to lose weight eventually a, a decrease in circulating leptin will be perceived by the brain as an energetic crisis and that will then elicit a series of of behaviors and programs towards basically eliminating this energetic crisis. So that's a very powerful signal. But there's, of course, also a series of other endocrine signals, including changes to thyroid hormone levels that are important for also sustaining energy expenditure. And we see also impacts on, on a lot of, of the well-known uh, endocrine factors, uh, could be growth hormone, axis, IGF, uh, uh, catecholamines, and insulin, glucagon, and some of the, the gut peptides as well. But the gut pep peptides are generally uh, more well-known for their uh, uh, kind of effects in between meals. So they're more these kind of uh, short-term satiating uh, factors that, that, that works in the postprandial state or to eliminate meal, meal uh, or terminate meals during, during eating, for example. Um, and then speaking about signals that prevent us from gaining excessive body weight um those signals are, are unfortunately or not unfortunately uh, because it it creates work for us but but those signals are not that well described and this is actually what we're we're trying to to solve right now or trying to understand what are the endocrine or hormonal regulators of this overfed state that actually brings weight back down again following a period of overfeeding um typically or many of these endocrine signals are then either coming from adipose tissue, the liver, the gut, or pancreas, and will 
typically signal in subset of neuronal populations in the hypothalamus of the brain and or in the brainstem and through feed forward mechanisms that, that will impact uh, our behavior. So with leptin, it's a hormone. So it's released into the blood by actual fat cells. Mm. And it sounds like it's, it's basically, uh, you know, straightforwardly related to, to the fat levels in the body. So the more fat cells you have, the higher the leptin levels are, and it's a satiety signal. So more leptin in the bloodstream means basically uh, your body is telling your brain and, and the rest of the body, uh, we've got a lot of energy stored up. We don't need to be so worried about food seeking anymore. Um, so we can, you know, put our resources towards other things. Uh, we, we've got, we've got all this energy saved up in the bank and, it's released into the bloodstream. It, it travels all the way to the brain. It is going to affect circuits that are involved in food seeking. And it's a hormone. We use hormones all the time. We use exogenous hormones all the time, you know, human growth hormone, um, and, you know, any number of other things that people use for, for various purposes. So can't we just use leptin as, as a, a treatment for obesity? Can't we just uh, sort of inject people with leptin and, and they'll be less hungry? So I'm pretty sure that, that when the, the group of researchers that discovered leptin in 1994, um, they 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 stumbled upon this discovery. Of, oh, well, it was actually decades of work. I'm pretty sure that that was their hope or anticipation as well, that leptin would be a super powerful signal to imitate pharmacologically. But as it turned out, it seems as if the central leptin signaling is already to a large extent saturated, so it doesn't have much of an effect to add more leptin to the system because the receptor signaling is already at its max. Um, and whereas it seems as if the primary function of physiological function of leptin is actually in the lower end of the spectrum. So when you, um, when your adipose tissue uh, is um, for some reason, the, uh, 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 lack of better whether shrinking or if you somehow is in an energy deficit state so uh, the brain is more sensitive to se sensitive to sensing lower circulating levels of leptin than it is to sense it uh, to to perceive higher higher circulating levels of of leptin so i think that was perhaps a big disappointment at the time but there was uh, some early clinical trials with recombinant leptin in the late 90s, but 90s, but they were largely uh, disappointing. That it showed very little uh, promise with respect to 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 weight loss. So that was that was more or less discarded uh, uh, around the turn of, of the century. And is there an analogy here with something like insulin resistance? So when, you know when you talk about diabetes. We talk about people being insulin resistant, so their bodies don't respond to insulin in the appropriate way because you know something is metabolically broken that prevents prevents their cells from responding in in the way that they should. Can something like that happen with these satiety signals like leptin, where the body's producing a lot because you've got high fat content, but it's just not getting where it needs to go, or the the body loses its ability to actually sense it, or something like that? There is a large body of literature on that phenomenon, leptin resistance, but also resistance to a lot of other hunger or satiety signals. I think that it's still being debated whether that whether that's a scientific de detour or not, uh, given what I was, I guess I was trying to explain before is that it seems as if 
the leptin signal is already saturated and it doesn't it's not because of resistance at the at the central level or the receptor level that uh, it's not as if the hormone doesn't work it just doesn't it, it just doesn't help to add more but there has been a lot of there's a large body of literature on leptin resistance so and it's still i think an ongoing going topic for many many investigators so i'm not going to also disregard it as a whole but i i think this I just subscribe to the notion that leptin is is more of a hunger than a satiety signal, meaning that it's the absence of leptin that where you see the most powerful physiological effect, effects, as opposed to the uh, increase of normal levels of leptin where you see very little physiological effects. So I think for me that's at least the the, the most rational explanation for the, for 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 that hormone uh, at at the time being. But there's a lot of interesting also uh, cellular and molecular work being done on leptin receptor signaling in the brain and um, another uh, research area that i think is interesting is the idea of empowering leptin signaling in the obese state um, so some people are trying to use polypharmacology or combination therapy as a way of is there any way to empower or enhance leptin signaling so you somehow can get more uh, satiating benefit for for leptin signaling in 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 the in the obese situation i think that's still an interesting uh, concept but i think leptin resistance as an analogy to insulin resistance i think it's it's not um it's not as as clear cut as for insulin resistance in di in diabetes I see. So instead of thinking about leptin as the signal, which just sort of linearly suppresses uh, hunger, it's more like uh, it unleashes hunger when it's not around. You know, so exactly. if you have some leptin, you don't need to be super hungry, but when it goes away, you better go find food. But if you've got some leptin around and you just add more, that's not doing what we would hope it does. Exactly. And that's supported by the genetic models, both unfortunately humans that suffer from leptin deficiency or animal models of leptin deficiency these they become extremely sick and and uh, morbidly obese uh, so that shows the lack of the signal is is really detrimental uh, but all the circumstances where we try and increase the signal it doesn't seem to add much benefit and so it sounds like there's thinking that there are other factors circulating in the blood, other endocrine factors, other hormones potentially that help regulate satiety and food seeking behavior or, or weight gain itself. Mm -hmm. um, how, how do we, what are some of these things or wh why do we suspect there are these other factors circulating in the bloodstream? Yeah, I think it's based on the work that has been done with this paradigm. I was, I was trying to, to, um, to talk a little bit about previously with this over overfeeding uh, experimental overfeeding paradigm. So, We've people have been been doing overfeeding studies um, uh, for for many decades. Uh, a lot of studies in the sixties and seventies and eighties, um, where they've done prolonged overfeeding studies, up to hundred days of controlled overfeeding. Um, you see, in some extreme cases, uh, fifteen plus kilogram controlled body weight gain in these studies. Um, but what is also apparent is that once you release people from this control overfeeding studies again, they lose body weight. And uh, to my knowledge, it, there's, it has not been uncovered what the mediators of this post-overfeeding weight loss 
what what the mediators of this response are um and um i think there's evidence to suggest for, especially from the rodent literature that it could be endocrine regulators so it's a little it becomes a little bit technical but um some uh, there's, there are these rodent studies that are termed parabiosis, uh, where you basically join the circulation of two animals, so you make kind of a pair of cymatic twin rats or mice. So you stitch them together on the side, so they are they are basically surgically connected in pairs, meaning that they share blood circulation. So all circulating hormones in animal A will travel to animal B and vice versa. And that system then enables you to examine if you do some type of intervention on animal A and it affects animal B, this is likely due to uh, some type of circulating component traveling from A to B. And, and those type of experiments has taught us a lot about um, endocrine regulation of body weight. And in the context of overfeeding, it has been shown that if you overfeed two overfeed one partner, you actually see the other partner lose a lot of body weight and, and fat mass in response to overfeeding of, of one partner, again, suggesting that there's some factor released from, from the overfed animal to the non-overfed animal um, that then uh, induces satiety and, and weight loss. Um, so in in my lab, we've actually, uh, we study both this type of intragastric or experimental overfeeding in 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 experimental animals as as well as humans. Um, so we the way we go go about it is that we we run these overfeeding trials and then we kind of agnostically look at all tissues as well as circulating um, or plasma, and um, and then we expose it to these more kind of novel omics technologies that enable you to an unbiased and perhaps systematic fashion to characterize. Uh, previously unknown signals that could be mediating this effect. So it's a combination of an old intervention with novel technologies that we hope can can help identify some of these uh, circulating factors that we believe exist. I see. So so one of the ways that we know that these circulating factors exist is you can literally surgically attach one mouse to another mouse, almost like a Siamese mm -hmm. twin. And if you take mouse A and you overfeed it, and it starts to gain weight, the other mouse actually stops eating, which implies mm -hmm. that something in the blood and the circulation is promoting satiety due to the overfeeding of the first mouse, and that actually causes the second mouse to lose weight. Mm. Exactly. And so when, we, when you do experiments in mice and you make them obese and, and you make them gain weight, you know, in the literature, you often re read that you know, mice, mice were given a high-fat diet. Mm. Um, but I'm interested in a little bit more detail on what the diets are that drive weight gain most effectively in laboratory animals. Is it high fat, literally like high saturated fat or unsaturated fat? How does that compare to the protein and the carbohydrate levels? Uh, what, you know, what macronutrients tend to uh, cause mice or other lab animals to most readily gain weight? Yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a good question. And, um, and I think it's an important question um, if you follow some of the oftentimes heated debates on social media, such as Twitter, on um, macronutrient uh, composition or distribution and the effects on human health and body fatness. Um, you see oftentimes a criticism of the rodent studies is that, well, they have completely different uh, um, dietary preferences, genetic uh, 
predisposition, which is also, of course, true. And it is also true because the it seems if the 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 easiest way to get a, a, a mouse fat is to um, is to introduce a relatively or fairly high fat diet. So it's a diet that oftentimes would have 50 to 60 percent of the energy coming from fat. Whereas I think for most humans, that would be probably too fatty of a diet and it would not be the most palatable human diet. So to get a, an experimental animal fat, you'd give it a high fat diet of 55 to 60% fat and the rest coming from a mixture of uh, sucrose uh, in terms of, so that would constitute the carbohydrate and some some protein to uh, to ensure that it's not malnourished with respect to amino acids so it can still also grow and um, there's been done a very kind of rigorous study a few years back where some uh, researchers uh, basically did I think uh, 20 plus if not more diets where they basically did all these kind of micro adjustments to the to the macronutrient distribution and and and, and concluded that it's a really uh, uh, high 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 fat diet that is the most uh, kind of obesity promoting diet in in experimental animals i see so so it is literally a high fat diet yeah. that makes them obesogenic but there's also it sounds like there's enough protein for them to meet their minimum amino acid requirements but it's not high protein beyond that and there's mm. also a sizable proportion of that is carbohydrates and in particular sugar yeah so so i think the the diet we use in in my lab is called is oftentimes termed a high fat high sucrose diet it is high it is very high fat it's 58% Fat, but this, the 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 carbohydrate from in the diet is com, it's comprised of sucrose, and in in our hands it's the diet that that is the most efficacious diet in order to to render the animals obese as well as uh, some of the other metabolic derangement that that follows obesity, including glucose intolerance or pre stages of of diabetes, which we also like to study. So that is the most efficacious diet in our hands. Sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> um, I want to hear more about your research to develop new tools to treat things like obesity and metabolic syndrome and things like this. But actually, before that, can you talk a little bit about um, what are the drugs that have been used or that are, are more more recently been developed um, for things like obesity? I know I, I didn't look too much into it, but I know that there was something that was making a buzz recently about being a new anti-obesity drug. Can you mm -hmm. talk a little bit about what that was and, and how that drug works and why we think that those mechanisms will be effective? Yeah, so we talked about the failure of recombinant leptin to treat obesity around year 2000 or so. And um, and basically, up until very recently, we haven't had any effective weight loss therapies. Um, but then, it, as it turned out, um, a subset of, of drugs that were originally developed for treatment of type 2 diabetes turned out also to have um, a quite powerful effect on, on weight loss. And I think once the companies discovered that, they started then to optimize the weight lowering components of these compounds. And, and, and they are now being approved these years. I think they've one of them from a Danish company, Novo Nordisk, was approved in 2020 or 2021 by the FDA for obesity treatment. And then we have 
Eli Lilly is coming out with a drug that's already approved for type 2 diabetes and now being fast-tracked for obesity or weight loss. And um, these compounds are compared to what we've had previously extremely efficacious. So you see in a, a, a body weight loss of uh, 15 to 20% uh, over one to two year treatment period, whereas previously we had difficulties uh, to obtaining 10% weight loss with the drugs that we had available. And this, the adverse effects were also previously um, uh, much more severe than what you see with this new class of, of compounds. Um, so these new drugs are uh, analogs of peptides that are coming from the gut, the gastrointestinal system, um, uh, typically they're built on a, a gut peptide called glucagon-like peptide 1, referred to as GLP-1. We produce this uh, endogenously in response and we secrete it in response to meals, but its half-life is extremely short, meaning that it's cleared by um, uh, by enzymes in, in the... It's cleaved by enzymes in the blood uh, within a few minutes, meaning that we basically clear it following meals extremely rapidly. Um, but the companies have succeeded in making really long-lasting versions of these compounds by substituting some amino acids in the sequence. So they have half-life that uh, that that makes them uh, uh, suitable for once weekly administration. So peptides that are based on these uh, peptide analogs of these gut hormones, GLP-1, and then the Eli Lilly's drug, it's a dual-acting peptide on GLP-1 and another uh, hormone called gastric inhibitory uh, peptide, which is kind of a cousin to GLP-1. So they make a peptide that has uh, uh, dual-acting effects on the receptors for both GLP-1 and GIP, but there's a lot of resemblance between these 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 compounds from these two companies, and this seems to really spreading also outside kind of academia and and your normal practitioner. It seems as if it also goes into popular media, so you see a lot of celebrities praising these compounds now, and and um, I think that's an interesting topic also to discuss. What are the implications of these apparently very efficacious uh, compounds that are now entering the market? Yeah, so so glucagon like peptide one, GLP one, uh, these drugs are similar to this peptide that's produced in the gut. What is the normal physiological function of GLP one? So the primary physiological function is uh, glucose induced insulin secretion. So in response to a meal, it it facilitates um, the ability of the body to to abs to absorb the nutrients or to to um, to ensure that the nutrients are being uh, are being taken up by the by the organs uh, uh, in relation to uh, or or in agreement with uh, insulin induced uh, nutrient uptake. So insulin typically works on on liver fat and muscle cells. So it enhances the ability of insulin to act on these tissues basically by by empowering insulin secretion. So its primary role is actually glucose induced insulin secretion. And its effect on satiety then, I think it's debated how much effect endogenous GLP-1 has on satiety, but it's very, very clear that the pharmacological versions work in the hypothalamus and of the brain and in the brainstem to elicit uh, powerful uh, satiety or lowering of food intake. So both 
rodent and human studies shows that these compounds they just lower food intake tremendously um so so that's i think one of the uh one of i think one of the kind of happy happy coincidences or the kind of the serendipity with this development is that that the long acting versions are so powerful weight lowering agents through, through their saturating effects in the brain okay so a a major outcome these peptides have and these drugs have is to cause more insulin release hmm. so okay so um this is not my area so this this might be a, a very basic question so these drugs cause more insulin release and that leads to satiety doesn't just consuming more calories also cause more insulin release and if so that, that confuses me yeah so so these things are uncoupled so the effects on uh, glycemic control or glucose metabolism are through increased insulin secretion that will then more rapidly uh, uh, remove the circulating substrates from the plasma and send them out to respective tissues. But independent of the insulin, the GLP-1 directly works on GLP-1 receptors in the brain, which elicits powerful uh, food intake suppressing effects through the same neurons that, for example, leptin work on these POMC neurons in the hypothalamus and specific uh, neurons in the nucleus of the solitary tract and the area postrema. So GLP-1 in and of itself works on these uh, appetite regulating neurons in the brain. I see. So GLP-1 goes all the way up to the brain. It works on circuits related to food seeking behavior and hunger in the brain and can mm. promote satiety that way in parallel to what it's doing sort of outside the brain and the rest of the body with respect to insulin and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. And um, so what, I mean, what's your view on like, d does the data for these drugs look as good as the internet buzz seemed to imply it was? Do you have any, do you have any, uh, are you cautious in any way about how well these drugs are going to work? Do you think that this is the type of peptide receptor interaction that's ideal? What are your basic thoughts on how well this could work? I mean, they're working very well and they've been, been tested quite rigorously over the last many years so the predecessors for some of these drugs were developed by the same companies and have been around um, the first one was approved in 2014 Saxenda is Neuraclutide it's another GLP-1 analog um, they work very well and the adverse effects are um, I mean they are for some individuals uh, intolerable, but they are not uh, they're not severe as such. So the main adverse effects are nausea um, and for some vomiting and uh, some report that this effect is transient, um, whereas others have difficulties uh, uh, living with this and, and then will have to discontinue the drug. But so far, they've been liberated from severe adverse effects such as development of 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 yeah, other like severe kind of um, disorders. So, 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 just for example, some of the the historical uh, weight lowering agents would have neuropsychiatric adverse effects or cardiovascular adverse effects. So that's a no go for new weight loss drugs. And these drugs seem to actually have positive effects on the cardiovascular system. So, so they seem so far to be cleared with that regards. And a weight loss of fifteen to twenty percent is is actually is quite quite decent um 
uh, one thing to keep in mind is that for these compounds, as well as other compounds, for example, drugs we use to treat uh, uh, high cholesterol levels or blood pressure, etc., the moment you stop treatment, the weight will rebound again. So it's a lifelong treatment. It's not a cure. It's a treatment that will then counteract some of these homeostatic mechanisms that try to impose weight regain. So the body will somehow still be in a perceived energy deficit, uh, but that is then actively being opposed by the drug. But once you then discontinue drug treatment, you'll unleash this homeostatic defense system again, and the weight will rebound. One thing I want to ask you about, so we've been talking about you know hormones and gut hormones that are relevant to metabolic health and that have long been known to regulate hunger and satiety. Um, I want to talk about a neurotransmitter that'll help uh, set us up to talk about some other stuff, and that's serotonin. So, you know, people know serotonin first as a neurotransmitter in the brain. It's famous because of SSRIs, especially serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are used to treat depression. But as many people now know, uh, there's a lot of serotonin in the gut. Um, Serotonin does a lot more stuff than just, you know, regulate mood and aspects of brain function. It's doing stuff all over the body. And in fact, a lot of um, the side effects for many serotonergic drugs can include things like um, metabolic effects. And so can you give people just sort of a basic overview maybe of how serotonin starts to tie into things like metabolism and weight gain and feeding? Um, I know that there's some relevance when it comes to things like nausea and appetite. And you know, how do you think about serotonin as a, a metabolism and, and obesity researcher? Yeah, so it's uh, it's a good question. So it's not a topic that I have uh, that we actively st- uh, we have actually started some of it, but but it's it's not a um, it's not a neurotransmitter that are being that widely studied. There are some labs that are of course uh, focusing on this, but I think one thing to be said is that there has been one drug on the market that have been working through serotonin 2C receptors, so one of the serotonin receptors, uh, an approved weight loss drug. So that clearly emphasizes that uh, the serotonin system is important for weight homeostasis. And that is, I guess that has also been known for, for decades. Um, and I think another uh, thing that I want to add in also perhaps to discussion is the, I think the clear interaction between oftentimes psychiatric disorders or such as um, uh, or drugs that you used to that we used to treat psychiatric disorders such as antidepressants or antipsychotic agents that they most often has quite powerful adverse effect on weight gain or weight loss most often it's weight gain emphasizing the interaction between perhaps not the disease pathologies, but at least the drugs we we use to to target, for example, the serotonin system seems to influence also energy homeostasis. So there's a lot of there's a lot of evidence for the involvement of the serotonin system in many aspects of, of energy metabolism. Um, yeah, so that there's at least some some things to unpack there. Um, and what kind of like comor- what kind of psychiatric comorbidities do we see with obesity? So for example, 
um, we can think of, of obesity as purely a metabolic phenomenon. Like there mm. has something to do with satiety signals in the brain and, you know, the nuts and bolts of our cellular metabolism um, going off track somehow. But, but I would imagine that there's a lot of overlap on the psychiatric side. For example, someone might be overeating, not because their metabolism is, is broken in some basic way, but perhaps because it's a response to uh, depression or anxiety or something like this. Uh, how do we start to think about tying those pieces together? Yeah, and that's, I think that's one of the important challenges in, in modern biomedical research is that we start to acknowledge that most of the diseases that we study are actually much more heterogeneous than we, than we initially thought or that, we, that we're currently kind of acknowledging in the way we study them is that I think there are many origins of, of obesity or weight gain. And for some individuals, it would have, be a, a, have a clear psychiatric origin, whereas for others, it would be a clear a clear-cut kind of endocrine origin uh, disruption in, for example, leptin signaling, whereas for other individuals, it would have a, could have a uh, mental, mental underpinning that would lead to compulsive overeating or other kind of uh, behaviors that somehow is is then driving some type of of altered eating eating phenotype. So I I I think that's one way of viewing it is that we need to be better to segregate the the obesity etiologies basically, and uh, that's something that we're not very good at at the moment. Um, I know that you know recently you've started to look at things like psilocybin and tryptamine psychedelics when it comes to their possible impact on feeding behavior and metabolism in mice. So can you describe what some of those results are and, and why you even thought that that was a, a relevant thing to, t- to test? Like why would, what I even gave you the idea to look at something like psilocybin when it comes to feeding behavior? Yeah. So the, I think the origin for this work, I would have to go on a little bit of a detour, but I'll try and be, be brief. Um, so we're really interested in trying to develop uh, drugs or pharmacotherapies that will have sustained or long-lasting effects on body weight. So as opposed to the current therapies that once you stop treatment, you see weight regain, we'd like to develop some therapies where you kind of readjust this defended level of body fat. We'd like to create therapies that enforces or renders the brain to defend a lower level of body fat and accept that as its new quote-unquote set point. And how do we how do we do this? So here we kind of start to seek inspiration in developments within treatment of depression and addiction. And we noticed that some of the compounds that were emerging were uh, antagonists of the NMDA receptors, such as ketamine um, and also uh, serotonergic uh, psychedelics. And uh, a kind of commonality for these is it seems with very not necessarily single administration, but with very infrequent drug administration, you'd see long-lasting disease-modifying benefits suggesting that kind of a um, synaptic, changes to synaptic structure or neurostructural components uh, might be able to sustain these kind of changes over a longer period of time. And and kind of our dream or vision was, imagine if we could do something similar to obesity or weight loss, if we could impose neurostructural changes that will then um uh, materialized in the form of a kind of lower level of defended body fatness so that was the starting point um and that uh, so we started actually exploring the NMDA receptor antagonist and we saw some quite nice effects and we're continuing to develop this so we've now actually used 
we've developed these uh, peptide small molecule conjugates where we use these gut peptides to target NMDA receptors specifically to brain regions of interest as a kind of Trojan horse strategy. So that's one of the key areas of work of the lab. But in parallel with that, we couldn't kind of uh, let the idea go about the serotonergic psychedelics. And and we were uh, excited, I think, about kind of the the broad spread of pleiotrophic benefits of psychedelics for a multitude of diseases. And given some of the commonalities between addiction-like phenotypes and depression and obesity, we just went ahead and started to explore the effects of, we just then selected psilocybin, and then we explored the effects of psilocybin on on, uh, eating behavior and weight loss, weight gain in in mouse models of obesity, basically. Okay, so I guess the idea is, you know, if you if you have an obese individual, you know, one way to think about what's kind of going on in the brain is the brain um, has accepted uh, one set point for what the the body fat content of the body should be, and in this case, it's something that's too high because it's going to have negative health consequences. So, what you'd like to do ideally is come up with an intervention that sort of resets uh, these circuits in the brain, so to speak, so that the set point for fat content is lower. And again, ideally, you'd want an intervention that makes that kind of reset in the brain so that you don't need to chronically be administering a drug or something. And the person then just has a brain that can uh, naturally uh, regulate its own feeding behavior without a continued intervention being necessary in the long term. So, you know, the basic idea with these psychedelics um, for, for many of the psychiatric applications, one of the remarkable things about them is that unlike other psychiatric drug treatments, they don't require chronic use. They're inducing some kind of neuroplastic change in the brain so that circuits are physically changing. And then you get effects that are persisting well beyond the administration of the drug. And so I think what you're basically saying is you'd like to have a drug like that with respect to obesity, because you don't want to be chronically administering something and you want the the brain to be sort of reset so that it can then handle itself. Yeah, exactly. So that's at least, I think, uh ambitious goal or kind of holy grail within obesity therapeutics uh, to develop it will be a cure basically uh, and and it sounds a little bit uh, maybe over ambitious but i i don't see uh, why we shouldn't try and pursue this and and i think the devil is in the detail i th- guess also probably you know better than me but for the psychedelics it's also not necessarily one uh, one treatment and you're cured for life it could be perhaps less frequent uh, treatments over a period of time or some type of combinatorial therapy either with the uh, it could be um, a, a co-administration of another drug it could be also psychological counseling and i don't i think i think we must be open to these type of of other interventions for obesity treatment it's great that we have these new drugs on the market but i i think we shouldn't stop innovating at this point we must really continue to try and 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 de- continue to develop more therapies also in parallel with acknowledging the the heterogeneity in the disease origin, right? So there will not be one size fits all in terms of, of weight loss treatments. And I think the final argument for this could be a viable strategy is the, the effect of the bariatric surgeries. So the obesity surgeries, uh, we haven't talked about those, but they are remarkable in the sense that they seem to have this effect on readjusting the homeostatic level of of defended uh, body fatness or or this set point if if we should call it that um so that that's at least 
one type of inspiration or something to aspire to 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 mimic that effect with the with the pharmacotherapy. So it's single intervention that will have these sustained effects on lowering a on, on lowering this defended level of body fat. How do those surgeries work? Are you talking about the the surgery where they basically go in and make someone's stomach smaller? Yeah. So it's either the most well-known or most widely applied surgeries are the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass is a rerouting uh, of the gastrointestinal tract or a vertical sleeve gastrectomy where you basically make the, the stomach smaller. Um, so I think historically the idea was that they work because it's a physical restriction, but nowadays it's uh, it's widely accepted that it's not the case. They actually work because they have influence on the secretion of some of these aforementioned gut peptides. Mm. So they seem to influence a long list of uh, of uh, signals that are arising from the gut. So in response to, so basically you have some type of readjustment of the gut-brain axis and the communication between the gut and the brain. And that 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 works basically, uh, quote unquote, miracles in terms of, of, of weight loss maintenance. Uh, so that's really exciting. And, and I think there's been work trying to really on dive into the details of this over the last 10, 15 years. And, and there's been made some headway, but, but I still think we need to fully understand how they work so effectively, but it's not by just a physical restriction of the gut. I think that's, that's clear that that is not the driver of, of the effect. It is probably through metabolic or endocrine mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And, and do we know of any metabolic effects or effects on feeding behavior that that psychedelics like psilocybin have? Is it affecting, has anyone measured, you know, changes in gut hormone secretion or food intake? And, and what, what do we know about that? Yeah. So we tried in, in our, in one paper we published in 2022. And I think, I believe that's the first paper of its kind. At least we couldn't find other, other manuscript. We tried to do a very comprehensive and broad characterization of at least psilocybin and its effect on animal physiology and metabolic regulation. So we examined the effects of both microdosing and single high dose administration in genetic models of obesity, dietary models of obesity, models of pharmacology induced weight regain, diet induced weight regain, um, palatable diet preference. Um, uh, and a seri- we tried to basically create a whole bunch of behavioral and physiological tests and then do a broad kind of characterization of of the effects of psilocybin on on these parameters in the mice and somewhat disappointingly we didn't find much in the mice uh, we saw that it had a quite convincing effect on lowering sucrose preference which is sometimes used as a kind of um kind of hedonic uh feeding test um but i also have i mean i don't know if it's very surprising i mean if we if we believe I don't know if we, but what is the the driver of the benefits of psychedelic therapy in humans? I mean, do we need the psychedelic experience or is it part of, do we need this highly evolved prefrontal cortex to have the full, uh, um, the full clinical benefit? If so, then the rodents are really poor model for studying this. So I think, to my knowledge, there's been there are no data to find with respect to psychedelic therapy in humans and exploring eating behavior, weight regulation, or anything like this. So I think it would be extremely exciting uh, to to do a human study, perhaps with a 
binge eating disorder type of setting and, and explore the effects of, of a psychedelic drug on, on that uh, disorder. Yeah, interesting. Um, so what kind of things are you guys working on today in the lab? What are some of the big questions that you're pursuing right now? Yeah, so I've already touched upon a couple of those. So one of them is is this uh, targeting of the uh, postsynaptic plasticity in order to introduce sustained effects on body weight through pharmacological means. And we study the molecular biology of neuroplasticity in order to better understand what are the targets we want to go at pharmacologically. So we're really interested in studying kind of the nitty gritty of synaptic connectivity in these brain regions that are important for appetite control, hopefully trying to come up with kind of next generation uh, weight lowering pharmacotherapies. Um, that is one big area, focus area. And then we really, um, yeah, we're really excited about this overfeeding intervention. Uh, and um, we really believe that that whole, it, it could hold promise to identify uh, unknown circulating factors or hormones that could be also mimicked pharmacologically, that we don't have to mimic them, but at least uncover aspects of energy metabolism or energy homeostasis that, that we don't that we don't know as of now. So we really I, we, we believe that the combination of these overfeeding intervention with new methodologies uh, could really um, yeah unveil some some new insights into energy homeostasis. So those are, are two primary areas of focus that that we're really working on um, in in the lab. And then we have a series of other side projects, but those are the the main focus areas. Mm-hmm. And so as someone who you know, your whole career is studying obesity and metabolic health and all this stuff has, how, how has your work and your studies over the years influenced your own, your own life in terms of, you know, have you, have you changed your diet at all based on stuff that you've learned? Are you um, very particular or disciplined about, about certain aspects of your own metabolic health? Um, You know, how, how do you think about all this as, as a scientific expert in this stuff? Yeah, I don't. I mean, of course, <laughs> I'm. I'm the scientific. Uh, I mean, it's. Uh, I think about the science of obesity from when I wake up to when I I go to bed. So of course, it somehow is also there in context of my own life. But um, I think it actually because I don't know if it, maybe it's an excuse, but because I believe in the role in the, in the fact that genetic susceptibility and the environment I'm positioned in plays such a big role in in my food choices and my eating patterns and how I live my life, I I, I acknowledge that I'm I'm just kind of a a slave to to, to society that's that I'm surrounded by. So I think I eat com- completely completely normal and um, I I try to pro- to prioritize. Uh, healthy eating and I try to stay active, but I think that's what most people, people do. Uh, um, but um, I, I I think we, in general, I think we overstate uh, the role of, of the individual and the individual's kind of idea about who you are and how you want to impose self-control or willpower over your own life. And, and underestimate the power of the biological mechanisms that that come into play when when we uh, in terms of of eating and weight regulation. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, one thing I want to ask you too is, 
so when you when you talk about experimental animals, so you're you're studying mice or rats or something like this, if you give them that high fat, high sugar diet that we talked about before, they will put on weight, they can become obese. What are the best ways in lab animals that they lose weight? To what extent can that be driven purely by giving them like an exercise wheel? Or um, to what extent does another diet get them back to their starting weight? And if so, you know, what is the composition of that diet? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, so one thing we joke about quite often is that we've cured mouse obesity thousands of times. So it's it's quite easy to cure obesity in the mouse because they are actually extremely sensitive to these uh, gut hormones we talked about before. So if you give them one of these modern drugs, you can more or less cure their obesity. But it's the same as with humans once you stop treatment. And if you if you maintain them on this high-fat, high-sugar diet, they will go back up again. Um but they're just a little bit more sensitive to the pharmacology, uh, perhaps because we can dose higher. Um, if you give them an exercise wheel, you'll see a change in body composition. You'll see a decrease in fat mass, perhaps an increase in lean mass, but they will you will not shred a lot of adipose mass. So, so as for humans, um, exercise is good for more or less everything you can think of, except for lowering your body weight. So it has, I mean, there's so much evidence that exercise benefits more or less all types of chronic disorders, except it's very inefficacious for weight mm-hmm. loss. Same goes for lab animals. Um, you can maintain them on a high-fat, high-sugar diet, and then you can switch them to this boring chow, rodent chow diet. They'll lose a lot of weight um, uh, because, again, it's their genetic sensitivity in the environment we position them in. And if you they just have access to one diet, they, they somehow they're actually capable of of lowering uh, body weight compared to on the high fat diet. But if you then reintroduce the high fat diet, they will go back up again. So in some ways they're quite good. Uh, the, the the mice and rats are quite good model for, for studying human energy metabolism. Uh, and they're at least they're much more predictive than for studying uh, your typical brain disorders. So neuropsychiatric disease, et cetera, where they they have much l- less predictive value, right? Mm-hmm. So, so you can make an obese mouse, you can give it one of these drugs that we've spoken about, and they're actually highly effective. So you will cure the obesity effectively, meaning specifically that the weight of the mouse will go down. Mm-hmm. My question, my next question is, what if you just do that persistently? So for an extended period of time, you take a formerly obese mouse, you give it the anti-obesity drug, which mm-hmm. mimics some of these gut peptides, and its weight goes down. But presumably, if it has the same diet available to it, it might be eating less, but it's still eating that high-fat, high-sugar diet. In other words, the mouse can uh, persist in its eating habits, maybe eating less overall, with uh, this drug uh, doing what it does. I would imagine that the mice still have maybe some metabolic issues that come from continuing with that high fat, high sugar diet, has anyone looked at that and seen, you know, other aspects of metabolic health and what happens to them in the presence of, of taking this drug? Yeah, good point. I mean, uh, if you weight match a group of animals on a healthy chow diet versus a high fat, high sugar diet, so they're matching body weight, I would assume that we'll be able to detect some metabolic uh, defects in the animals that are maintained on the high fat, high sucrose diet. They'll probably be a little bit less um insulin sensitive they may have hyper slight hypercholesterolemia and some other defects i I'm, i would i would be pretty sure that we would see that effect i can't 
from the top of my mind recall someone having done this type of study, but I, I would be certain that, that that would be the case. So there is a direct effect on a very unhealthy diet compared to a healthier diet in the weight matched condition, at least in, in the road. And I think we'll be able to see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, my concern with some of these new drugs would simply be that you know, if they're very effective at the the weight loss component of this specifically, you know, that's that's great. But what if, you know, we're just sort of enabling people to persist in uh, the eating habits that caused the obesity to begin with? And so now we're just sort of paper, papering over the problem where they might eat less and they might lose that weight, which is a good thing, but they're still eating the same diet composition that that caused the problem to begin with. Is there any concern about that? So it's a good point. I think in general, the, there's some evidence that the compounds also affect um, macronutrient or eating preferences toward mm. a healthier diet. But on the other hand, you can also imagine a circumstance where you introduce a compound to to individuals that live in an environment where they mostly have access to, to fast food uh, restaurants. Yeah, yeah. And then they would have to eat less of that fast food as compared to what they normally do. So you can imagine that you could see a state of malnourishment or malnutrition, um, uh, insufficient uh, intake of vitamins, minerals, et cetera. Um, uh, so that, I think that's a fair kind of caveat to, to envision, but I think in general, you, there's there are reports that people actually prefer healthier choices when mm-hmm. they're on the, on the drug. Have people uh, looked at food preference shifts in response to this GLP-1 drug in, in rodents? And if so, what, what are those? Um, there are a few studies. I think in uh, in general in rodents, uh, you typically see changes in macronutrient preference from the top of my mind. I would, I'm would i pretty certain that you see a decrease in the preference for fat, given that that is most preferred macronutrient in the rodents at a slight increase than in protein and carbohydrates. But I'm 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 not hundred percent sure, but it has been done with with the, many of these drugs and these type of macronutrient preference assays in rodents. I see. So so based on the information we have now, it's not simply that these drugs are decreasing the amount of calories consumed. They also seem to be inducing a shift in the macronutrient preference, the things that you want to eat. Yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually, eating. I mean, to translate a f- sensation of hunger. Uh, has to be you have to go through motivation and actually locomotion in the end to realize this so so the hunger satiety circuits are heavily interconnected with motivation and reward and uh, and 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 similar circuits uh, executive circuits in the brain right so there is interconnectedness between these circuits so i think um anything that would stimulate kind of canonical hunger in the hypothalamus would also have an impact on increasing the food motivation in an animal and the preference for energy dense palatable foods as well. So that's typically highly interconnected. I see. And vice versa, when you if you suppress this this pathway, you're also likely to suppress kind of the preference for these type of, of hyper palatable foods. I see. Um well we talked about a lot already. Is there anything that you want to reiterate or or touch on uh before we go? Um I'll probably come to think about a ton of things afterwards, but I guess it'll be too late. No, but the worst case or best case, we'll have to do a follow-up. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you want to maybe just leave people with, you know, what's what's a really exciting question 
that your lab or other labs are pursuing right now with respect to obesity and, and metabolic health that is a major question that we don't know the answer to right now, but you think we will understand in the next few years? Oh, wow. Um, I guess I'm most absorbed by how the brain defends these different levels of body fatness. What 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 is it that 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 makes the brain for person A defend 150 kilogram body weight with I don't know 70 kilograms of body fat, whereas for person B defends a very very lean phenotype. I th I th and why is it so difficult to to readjust this defender level of body fat, although it being um, uh, pathological for 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 one individual? I think that that's but that has I guess that has has been a, a topic of interest for many decades. So I probably probably won't be solved within a few years. But I think that that still is the what fascinates me the most is is this uh, kind of homeostatic defense of of body weight and body fat. All right. Well, Professor Clemenson, thank you for your time. Thank you. This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about AminoCo is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and engineered for different purposes, and my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts, and I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto-friendly, soy-free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO, so they are compatible compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com slash mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying AminoCo's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising, and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see. So check out aminoco.com slash mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off.